0: Uh... <laughs> Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And
1: I'm PJ, and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Troll Tooth Wars.
0: Um, I guess I was going to say off air, but I guess we have the mics running, but it's not going to make it into the episode, blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> PJ, PJ and I were just having like a little conversation, very inside baseball about uh, the audio issues that were present on the last couple of episodes. Mm. Not PJ's fault at all. His audio was as crisp and perfect and informative as it always is. Oh, no, I'm, I'm absolutely faultless as a human being, just generally. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, and I think <laughs> anyone who's listening to the show would know that quite intimately. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'd like to apologize. Got to the root of the problem. Hopefully, when you're hearing this, uh, I am I, I am nearly as crisp as PJ. Although if I come to edit this and I find there's a buzz again, and and anyone listening to this is hearing it with an awful awful hum in the background, I might just lose my mind. So <laughs> the buzz is coming from inside the room. <laughs> it's probably coming from inside in my head at this point. To be honest, uh,
1: I mean I could hear it. It was definitely there. But I think you did an excellent job of of sort of clearing it up and and making it so low. In terms of volume, to be barely noticeable, that, you know, minute in, I'd forgotten it was there.
0: Oh, thank you, PJ. That's probably because, um, uh, what is it? Like, um, uh, what do they call it? God, I learned this once. Uh, is it habituation? Where Might you be. suddenly you suddenly just be like a. It's like you put your socks on for the first time in the morning and all you can feel is your socks. And then after like a few minutes, you're not even aware your socks are there. Well, now I'm thinking about my socks and I'm suddenly aware of th- them. Now all you can think about is your socks. Yes, I do. I do apologise. <laughs> um, it's been a lot of Grant Morrison on the old. Uh, I feel oh, doing these social media the press junket rounds at the moment. Yeah, for for their new book, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, uh it, it's so weird because in many ways Morrison's a bit of a hermit. I want to say <laughs> like yeah. uh, uh, living in their um. I have to imagine some kind of um, fortress of solitude up in Glasgow. (laughs) You need the giant key to open. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. um, I know they divide their time with their partner between, um, I want to say, Glasgow and Los Angeles. Hmm. Yeah. Which uh, sounds like the weirdest album name you could imagine. Uh, But, yeah, it would seem that, uh, like all good authors uh they disappear for a few years then emerge from their cave with um a whole new book and it's been very surreal to see um uh to see grant morrison doing like uh oh like uh fox breakfast like uh the late night show It's really surreal
1: yeah weren't they on was it was it the the
0: stephen colbert one or i uh, uh there was oh, i'm awful with this i'm our, our american listeners are probably uh showing at the uh seth is it seth myers okay one Uh, of them maybe did maybe did colbert as well but um one of the many 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 late shows yeah that was
1: when you get someone who is and i know this is about an, an actual book not a comic but when you get someone who is ostensibly a comic book writer on these shows that like that's what they're primarily known for that's always baffling to me. I was like, oh, have have
0: have we made it finally? <laughs> it's uh Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Because like generally I don't think it's a broad I don't think it's an oversimplification to say that to the wider public, comic writers in particular are kind of unknown, kind mm. of just invisible. Maybe artists might have a slightly higher profile nowadays, but only just I think. I this is why it's such a weird industry. We're still still a fringe concern even with even with, you know, Marvel and Disney being what they are.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the big name writers in comics, if you said their names to a layperson on the street, unless we're talking like the the crossovers, like, you know, Neil Gaiman um to a degree, I guess Brian K Vaughan, uh, people like that Mm. Then they're not going to have a clue who you're talking about. Chris Claremont. I don't think anyone
0: outside of comics is going to know who that is. No, and that's weird. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. The um, it's funny you mentioned like the ones that you might have a slightly higher awareness of are, you know, Neil Gaiman, Brian K. Vaughan, and it's interesting, but of course, both of, both of them, uh, I've had very. have had and are having very successful careers in um, television be it directly or indirectly I mean because Brian K Vaughan I mean his uh, his entire background was TV writing and production wasn't it
1: I believe so yeah I think I want to say he worked in TV I couldn't tell you on what shows uh, and then moved into comics and you had that period in sort of the mid noughties where he was incredibly prolific, you know, doing stuff for Marvel and Image and um you know, Runaways and and um X machina, mm. Why the Last Man. And then sort of seemed to move back to TV for a while and then came back to comics for a bit with Saga and yeah.
0: <laughs> and it's, and it's odd, isn't it? Because uh, yeah, because I, I think because uh, my I think my brother may have been the one person who <laughs> really really followed Lost like all the way through and loved <laughs> and loved every second of it. Uh, and didn't Brian K. Vaughan... He wasn't on Lost originally, but around like season four, when people were starting to go, "What the hell is going on?" and the show was like, "Okay, we need to." So need to, to, yeah,
1: yeah, like Lost at the end of season two was starting to lose me. Mm. I did start watching it. And at the end of season two, I was like, they they don't know what they're doing. What the hell? And then I think, I can't remember what it was, but something happens at the very end of that season that made me go, Oh, okay. Okay. This is interesting. They are taking it in a slightly new direction. Great. And then season three, I think is when Brian K Vaughan came on board Ah. and some of his episodes were superb and it picked up for me again. Mm. And then, then I can't remember how many seasons I was in. Maybe season four. <laughs> it starts dropping off a bit for me again. And then there was, this was in the era before, you know, TV on demand, that you could record something while you mm. were out just directly on your TV box uh, or or you had the catch-up <laughs> features. I think the iPlayer, BBC iPlayer had started, but a lot of the others weren't around yet. Sure. And then I remember one week, I didn't have Sky, which is where Lost was shown, but every week I'd go over to a friend's to watch it. And then one week they weren't home and I couldn't go over and watch it. And I missed that one episode of Lost and I never went back to it. I was like, oh, I'm free. Because it's very (laughs) much a show where if you miss one episode, you are screwed. And I did have this moment of, I don't have to watch this anymore. Oh God, that's a
0: relief. (laughs) So it's um, That was uh, uh, not solely... Uh, the brainchild of Damon Lindelof, I want to say. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Damon Lindelof. Had a big hand in it. Um, and it's so funny because I think he was also the showrunner on Watchmen. Yes. And it's so funny because, you know, uh, Watchmen was a more of a limited series. I think it was only like, oh, I could have got this wrong, but like six or eight episodes. It was quite short. And I remember thinking the first I don't know, let's call it 75% of that show, I was like, this is brilliant. Like, I am a complete convert. I was not expecting it to be as good as it is. Uh, This is fantastic. I love it. He's a genius. And then I felt, personal opinion, really fluffed the ending. Right. And then I was like, ah, Lindelof. Yeah. Lindelof-ed it. It's Velosk's effect all over again. (laughs) The
1: thing is, I have a weird thing with Damon Lindelof where... Every interview I've seen with him or read with him, uh, posts I've seen from him on social media, etc., he seems like a genuinely lovely guy, and I really like him. Mm. And I want to like his writing. But between Lost, he did some comics work. Uh, I want to say he did like a... A Wolverine Hulk miniseries. It may be an Ultimate Wolverine Hulk. Like oh God! That.
0: Was that was that him? Wow! I
1: think so. And it was awful. There's a Batman story he did as well. I remember that I thought this is this is just terrible. This is absolutely abysmal. And he's one of those writers where I haven't seen Watchmen, uh, the the TV show, yet. I, mm. I'd like to. I'm curious, but he hasn't anything I've seen or read by him. I just have not enjoyed. I don't is I don't it, want to speak ill of him because as I say I really
0: like him, but I just don't think he's a very good writer. Is it is it uh is it wrong to kind of subconsciously want to put him in the same camp as Jeff Loeb? Um, I think that's probably the best analogy. Although I would
1: argue Jeff Loeb has done stuff that I've really liked that I is just, very well written. But
0: yeah, I think
1: I just At this point, Loeb is misses it, outnumber the
0: hits. Yeah, but what is it—the weird like TV thing, uh, the overlap, which they both seem to have? It, it's funny. You talk about Lindelof, and suddenly, like Jeff Loeb, just kept like springing to mind because I was like, okay, comics guy, but but also like was the head of wasn't he the head of like Marvel's TV division for a good while? Yeah, yeah, and and. I don't know, is it something about the mindset of maybe not even writing, but just having to produce and exist within a structured TV show format that that kind of breeds this kind of storytelling? That's a massively bad generalisation because there's, of course, incredible TV. What a a stupid thing to say. (laughs) But, like, is it people who straddle these two worlds and think they can do both? And then you're like, "Uh, maybe maybe the skills of one don't necessarily translate to the other. It's funny that
1: Jeff Loeb has come up actually because when I was talking about Ultimate Hulk Wolverine just now, in my brain I was thinking, oh was that Jeff Loeb? <laughs>
0: <laughs> or maybe you're just for echoes of the trauma of yeah. Ultimates 3 wow. kind of going through your brain. Yeah, that was a
1: nadir, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I do. I I mean, I I don't know anything about Damon Lindelof as a person. Um You know, it's interesting you saying, like, he comes across as a very nice guy. He possibly had the... Well, I was going to say the thankless task. He didn't have to do it. He brought this on himself of trying to call Alan Moore to get his blessing for the Watchmen TV series. Oh, yeah, he shouldn't have bothered. Yeah, Damon, like, don't. Like, you know, you're only hurting everyone involved, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean,
1: there's... A lot of people who say the Watchmen show is very good and there's the other comics they've done, which mm. I know some people like and everything, but I still want those people who say they should have just left Watchmen alone as its own thing. No, I and, agree. Yeah. yeah no I, sequels, I, I... no prequels. Shouldn't have even bothered trying to adapt it into a movie. Just leave it.
0: No, I I agree. Yeah, I kind of agree wholeheartedly to be honest. I wasn't a big fan of the movie. No, me neither. And I remember when when I didn't when I was quite kind of lukewarm on on the movie. Um, you know, the you know, you say like oh, I didn't really care for it. The the counter argument was always, "Oh, you don't like it because of what they changed. Like you don't like it because hypothetically they did away with the big space squid." At the end. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, well, no, that wasn't, I, you know, the squid, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, that was not my problem with it. My problem with it on many levels was uh, the writing. Uh, a lot of it was very, very flat. Uh, and um, I thought a couple of the actors in particular were were very bad, I would say. And I found it quite hard to have any emotional attachment to it.
1: I thought I think with the film for me the like opening ten minutes or so I think is stunning mm. the the uh, the credits where you sort of go through the history of the superheroes in that universe I think is so well done and the the first fight where the comedian is murdered is brilliant mm. and I was watching that thinking okay okay Snyder gets Watchmen this bodes well and then right after that it just nosedived for me and I feel like it's in doing a carbon copy of the comic, which is basically what they tried to do, um, but somehow they managed to miss the point of the comic. Like, I watched it with someone who said to me, oh, I think I like that they had the same messages in the film as were in the comic. And I sort of went, yeah, but that was an accident. That Mm -hmm. was only there because it was in the comic. And they did that scene shot for shot almost. And I watched the, the director's cut, the longer edition, thinking... Okay, maybe if you get more of the comic in there, it might make it better. And it yeah. had this weird effect for me of both making it better and worse all at the same time. <laughs> because yeah. I think the film has some real pacing issues, but the the longer cut improves that. But you also get more of Zack Snyder's
0: Watchmen, which isn't actually a good thing. So, yeah. um, Being as charitable as I can possibly be... um. I could say that it is just very clear what a di- You can tell what a director's passions are. Yes. And, um, he's a visuals guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like clearly that's where his, 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 uh, his interests lay in adapting that as, as if making a, as close a copy and of the comic, but also making it really stylish and like mid two thousands would be the, would be enough. Um, did you hear about the failed attempt to adapt Watchmen in the... I want to say like the 90s?
1: There were several I know of. The one that sticks in my mind is that Terry Gilliam was trying to do it for
0: oh, a while. Oh, crap. I'd, I'd forgotten about that one. The... um I... There's a weird... There was a screenplay written for an adaptation of Watchmen that... Moved the action into the early 2000s. Okay. And framed it against the war on terror. And it was written by the guy who voices Metal Gear Solid. Oh, David Hayes. No, what am I saying? Sorry, the guy who. I his name. No. <laughs> Sorry. Solid Snake. <laughs> Yes, sorry. <laughs> the guy who voices Mr. Metal Gear Solid himself yeah, Solid David Hayter, also yes. the voice of Captain America in the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. Really? Yep. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I can yeah, I that mean that's a good good cast. <laughs> and and apparently, uh, such as it is, take it with take it or leave it, um, Alan Moore felt that if he, he apparently he read the screenplay and was like, well, if you're going to adapt it. This is it. He's not giving it his blessing, but he's like, "This is the closest you might conceivably come to getting my blessing, so to speak." Okay, I didn't know about that. That's interesting. But uh, but again, it didn't it didn't take off. Because wasn't wasn't um, Gilliam talking about like it would be like a twelve part TV show?
1: I think I think he he talked it up as like a two part movie and then as, as as yeah as like a twelve part TV show. I think when he was involved, they were looking at a, a few different ways of doing it. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think I think generally it was it just came down on the idea of it's unfilmable. Yeah, um, and yeah, and I have to say, like uh, when they said they were doing the Watchmen TV show and it was gonna be like a sequel, I was I I, I wasn't enthused, to be honest. Like I um I I, I probably wouldn't have actively tracked it down if um, my brother hadn't got it for me. On DVD for a, for Christmas, I think. So uh, Lucy and I watched it and I was surprised because I was like, you know what? This is quite interesting. And I think the first episode in particular was so genuinely weird hmm. that I was like, I'm amazed this is a mainstream show because this is really unusual. And I liked it. But it's interesting that the things I liked were the bits which were departures from the Watchmen mythos. Because they were like, this is a sequel. We're going to start forging our own stuff. And I was like, oh, that's really weird. That's really weird and I like it. But then, of course, that raises the question that, like, if all the stuff I like is the new weird stuff they put in, then why did it have to be a Watchmen uh, kind of property ab- yeah. apart from the obvious answer of it's brand recognition and then people would go crazy for it
1: i think when you're adapting something or or something doing anything with a property like that it is very difficult to get it right i think obviously the Watchmen film they tried to just straight up do the comic but it it, it just somehow missed the point a lot it was as I say it was just like they photocopied it in a way mm. and i think if they were doing a straight adaptation of Watchmen today, what are we talking, 13, 14 years after the fact, it would be more likely to be a TV show. I think Sandman currently shows the best way to do that because it's a pretty straight adaptation. Um, It is... Hewing quite closely to the comic, and they're taking not quite, but almost an episode of the show is an issue of the comic. There mm. are some changes here and there to that. Like, there's one episode that specifically adapts two issues of the
0: comic to like one shot. Yes, I know. I think I know exactly what we watched it last night. There we go. Yeah, I mm. loved that episode. um I have to say that was the first episode uh, I truly loved. <laughs> I'd been a little, little kind of, you know, I was like, oh, it's okay. I was, I, I wasn't quite getting into it for the first like f- three four or so episodes but yeah you get to that episode and i was like oh this is very good like i'm having a good time i'm enjoying yeah. this yeah
1: yeah it was finding its feet but yeah it's like it as i say an episode to an issue f- for the most part and then within that there are changes additions you know just just for the pacing of a tv show rather than the pacing of a comic and then other things like John Dee's
0: not Doctor Destiny, which is a shame. Oh. <laughs> but There it is. <laughs> I know. I was wondering, like, how are they're going to thread that needle. Like, yeah, you know, we can't be, and yeah, and but I was, I was, I was actually wondering about the legality of some of the some of the challenges they were facing because obviously it's um, being developed by like uh, Warner Warner Brothers. You know, their their fancy new logo is takes up takes five minutes to disappear from the screen at the start mm. of each episode. <laughs> But I was thinking about it. It's like, okay, okay. So they're obviously they're obviously not going to want bringing it back to the JLA. You're not going to have Jean just turn up in an episode, you know? They're not going to reference uh, the Justice League. So they- okay, so okay, fine. Easy enough to cut the Justice League out of Volume One. Um, but I was thinking about uh, John Constantine. Yeah. And I was like, uh, my questions were. A could they show John Constantine because he's technically part of a CW universe. Uh, is it CW? Yeah, the TV stuff? Yeah. And I know obviously it's all it's all owned by DC, but I was thinking like is that a separate license where he's currently like all the rights to John Constantine are tied up with the CW. But then the, the other question would be, if they could have used John Constantine, would they have wanted to? Because would that have been distracting to an audience such just coming here, maybe new to the property, just going like, oh, what's Sandman about? And then going like, wait, John Constantine? Like the guy <laughs> on CW? Or like Keanu Reeves? You know, that would be, would that be distracting? And then, of course, you know that like, well, Joanna Constantine was created... For Sandman, yeah. So, in a kind of like the same reason we've not been able to have Kang the Conqueror on screen because he was tied up under the Fantastic Four license, was that a thing? I. This is just these are the weird questions I find myself asking while I watch a TV show.
1: My understanding of it, and I've only done a little bit of of research into it. I haven't gone fully in depth, but my understanding is that these are all just creative decisions. It's not a legal thing. Ah. Oh. Yeah, I think if they'd done it a few years ago, it would have been because that was at the point where the DC TV shows weren't allowed to use the characters who were appearing in the films other than The Flash. Uh, But like Superman wasn't allowed to be on Supergirl for the first year because of the Superman movies. And Mm. then they sort of softened on that and it's changed and now you've got the Superman TV show as well. So I think if they'd wanted to use John Constantine, as Sandman apparently tells us it should be pronounced... (laughs) Yeah, I think they could have, but I think, yeah, I think they've done this to differentiate it a bit and to make sure it is seen as a separate thing to the other DC Mm. properties. And I think it's a really good decision as well because I think Jenna Coleman might be my favorite screen version of that character.
0: Can I say something potentially cruel? Yeah. I've given it a lot of thought over the last decade. I don't think I like Jenna Coleman as an actor. Oh, really? I know. I'm sorry, World. I know the World feels differently, but every time she walks on screen, I'm like, oh God, Clara's back. Oh no. I think I think Doctor Who
1: did her a disservice. I think yeah. there was a lot of stuff in Doctor Who that wasn't very well written. And I say this as a massive Doctor Who fan. I love Doctor Who, but that period of the show is not my favourite and Clara will never be one of my favourite companions, but I think that's... And I like Stephen Moffat as well, so I hate saying it, but I think that's the writing. And Stephen Moffat is a good writer. He can write really good stuff. But I think on Doctor Who, he caved to some of his worst impulses at times. And so that's why I think Jenna Coleman didn't come out of that particularly well. And why I was sort of, when they announced she was playing Joanna Constantine, I was a bit, oh, really? But she sold me. I thought she was brilliant in in the Sandman I I absolutely loved her and as I say I think she is now my favorite screen version
0: of that character oh uh, it's so funny uh, this is this is the rich tapestry of life and it's, it's why like everyone can have different opinions it's lovely because yeah. i like because I I just could not stand any second of her on screen I was like oh god oh god <laughs> <laughs> let the mock end I just you know oh I'm. I'm a. Ba- I think I'm a bad person. You are a bad person, John. But that's you know that's why we. You're the bad boy of of the UK independent <laughs> comic scene, and that's why we love you. Yeah. When people think of John, they they think of the hard drinking, uh, kind of uh, opinionated and angry young man. Well, not young anymore. Um, I did like Hob. Yes. Yeah. He was brilliant. They they picked an actor who may have been just grown in a lab to have the cheekiest grin. You can imagine he's he was
1: great. Um, he's sir uh, Ben Kingsley's son
0: is he really yep i thought i thought he looked familiar, but I couldn't quite like yeah place it on anything yep well, yeah. mm. well um p j this has been a fun uh wander through the uh it was almost like we're hitting all we're going doing all the hits we've done. we've done watchmen critically acclaimed we've done Sandman critically acclaimed all big d c titles and now. The third member of the triumvirate, JLA. I think we're trying to put off talking about the comic a bit because it's the second to last issue of the run and I don't think either of us want it to end. <laughs> I think I'm in severe denial because it's like, I'm looking at the pages left in the trade paperback and I'm like, oh, It's that that's much. That. But I'm going like, in my brain, I'm going like, oh, that's got to be three issues, right? You no, know, I think... That can't be just two. It's just a slightly longer last issue, isn't it? Oh, that would explain it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking at my spreadsheet as well. The spreadsheet, which has been like our kind of, um, constant companion over, um, well, I mean, uh, since this since all began, you know, a couple of years or whatever. And, um, yeah, it's wild to me. It's absolutely wild. Cause I'm like, only, there's only two boxes left to fill. Oh, now I have a sad. Plus it feels like, I mean, cause we, we, um, we banked a couple of episodes because we were, um. We all had other commitments going on, but it feels like years since we last sat down to record. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So for for the, for the benefit of the audience and mine, PJ, where are we? What on earth is happening? Well, a lot. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> so the Injustice Gang returned. They had a plan to take down the Justice League. This was a new version of the Injustice Gang, of course, still led by Lex Luthor, but composed then of Prometheus, the General and Queen Bee. But it turned out they were being influenced by the Primordial Annihilator, a weapon from before time and outside of the universe, Mageddon, which sort of brings war and hate with it and destroys everything. It's destroyed Wonderworld already. That's sad. Uh but now it's arrived at Earth, and the League are basically they've just they've kind of beaten the Injustice gang. Queen Bee's headquarters and everything in New York is still a problem, but. The general's been lost in the ghost zone. Prometheus has been taken down by Batman, who has fired Huntress from the League because she was about to kill Prometheus in cold blood. And uh, Luthor is now in Justice League custody. And what was the other thing? Kyle. Yes, Green Lantern. His ring stopped working, but he took a spaceship out to fight Queen Bee's fleet
0: under the shadow of Mageddon, and he got blowed up. And, uh, yeah, and that's about as concise a summary as you could possibly imagine. Uh, The world is going to war, and all the seeds to this have been sown, well, I was going to say since since day one, but almost before that, because uh, reaching way back to uh, JLA and Midsummer's Nightmare, um, no man uh, warned the League of a coming war bringer which he was trying to prepare humanity for, in his own weird way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, the new Gogs have been fearing this thing for a while. Um, uh, um, Zauriel uh, apparently knew this threat was coming. It's apparently why he was assigned to Earth. But... Oh, yeah, he's been killed too. The Watchtower blew up with him on it. Uh, yeah, but um, I don't think it's it's not a personal thing, but I think he's kind of been forgotten about. I'd forgotten about him. <laughs> but that's not... That's not a, you know,
1: I love Zauriel. That's just how full these comics have been. So much is happening in this storyline; it's ridiculous.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's been wild, and uh, it uh, just hopefully, if you've been listening, uh, you'll know that um, it hasn't felt too cramped. It's actually, it's actually been flowing quite nicely from one crazy event to the next.
1: Yes, it really has. This is this is a real high point
0: of this run, and it's sad that this is the end. And we are, yeah. I mean, this is very much. We are very much entering the end phase now because, yeah, the 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 random movement of chess pieces. Oh yeah, I also, of course, um, Superman and Orion have boom-tubed directly into the inner workings of Megadon. Yeah, uh, because that's what Superman does. So, uh, yeah, various plot threads have come together. The JLA embassy has assembled all the working superheroes. And now, in true avataristic, uh, at- activistic Morrison territory, uh, we have a concept of superheroes literally fighting the concept of war. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's uh, capes versus uh, kind of fighter jets, basically.
1: Yeah, and it, the issue throws you in straight away the first page is insane the first (laughs) image on the first page is insane because this this page is uh, like a four panel layout but it's one panel across the page at the top and then each panel is like a quarter of the page and this first panel is above the earth all these like b-shaped spaceships (laughs) fighter ships battling these tiny superhero figures, explosions going off everywhere, and then just behind the Earth is this massive set of red eyes and Mageddon's face and the
0: sun in its forehead, and it's it's insane. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, and as um, I, I, I was just reminded, PJ of a previous line from uh, from Plastic Man, Earth is under attack from killer space bees just when you think there can't possibly be anything funny about interstellar warfare. <laughs> Uh and yeah, and uh to make matters worse, uh it is not just the giant ailing space bees. Um uh yeah, uh, as Oracle says, you know, people are, are lashing out everywhere and um and Green, Line- Green Lantern's mind just um well, it 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 went out. It just stopped existing on the digital telepathy network. So uh I think Kyle's dead. Basically. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So Oracle is connected now. Prometheus wrecked her watchtower and she's now hooked up a mother box to her own technology and has this digital telepathy
0: out to the rest of the league and all the other heroes who are pitching into. Um, and we see uh, superheroes kind of flying high um, above countries, kind of like, um, you know, fighting fighter jets trying to stop uh, stop wars breaking out. Um, we see an, uh, a nuke going off, uh, just devastating a city. Uh, and, and, and we have um, Oracle like, at her desk kind of monitoring it all. And um, you know, she says, uh, you know, it's happening everywhere. It's hap- you know, um, people are retaliating. Um, yeah, there's troops moving towards Los Angeles. There's missiles aimed at New Delhi. Pakistan has just been blown up. Um, and she says, blast going to save the world, guys.
1: So yeah, a crazy first page. <laughs> I I feel bad for anyone where this was their first issue of JLA.
0: <laughs> I mean, what a hook though, PJ. Yeah, like, that's true. Yeah. It would make me want to know what the hell was going on. Um, and I, I feel I have to point it out because I bored PJ uh, to death with talk about this before we started recording. Um, but in the trade paperback, uh, you know, they they quite frequently uh will add little blocks of say just the color black to, um, you know, uh, hide any text or erroneous messages which came out in the issue. And here we can see at the bottom of the page in the trade paperback, someone has drawn a black box over what presumably was some text that needed covering, uh, and they've used a slightly different colour profile of black to the uh, border... (laughs) Uh, the borders around the panels, so you can see two shades of black in close proximity.
1: It's so it, whoever did that work on shading the black, so you could see their work and really appreciate the job they'd done.
0: Oh, indeed, indeed. And 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 as somebody who has spent the better part of three weeks addressing some of these issues and getting a book to print, um, I, I bear them no malice. It's bloody, <laughs> it's bloody hard.
1: But we we cut from there to two small panels. On a double, It then becomes a double page spread of a boom tube opening up with a massive boom, three shadowy figures emerging, and then the spread of Batman, Jean and Huntress flying out of the boom tube as Batman just shouts get me tactical. And then we get our title and credits. So it's World War 3 Part 5, Grant Morrison Writer, Howard Porter Penciler, Drew Garaci, Inca, Ken Lopez Letterer, Pat Garrahy, Colorist, Heroic Age Separator, Tony Bedard Associate Editor and Dan Rasplett Editor.
0: Now, uh, PJ, two questions. Hmm. W- one, where have they dumped Prometheus? Did they make a pit stop on the way? Yeah, I wondered that too. And, it, and if so, did Jean pick up a new cape or has he grown one like hair? Um There are
1: some like lines at like the left side of his cape that make me think this is sort of in the process of forming. Sort of the shapes we've seen Porter draw
0: before when Jean is shapeshifting. Hmm. It's possible. Yeah. Anyway, he's, he, he's, he's redressed. He's, he's looking good, basically. <laughs> yes. And also, I, I'd never noticed before, PJ, but we, of course, we've had a change in Inca. Yes. Yes, we have, which yes. is a hell of a time to come on board. Uh, yeah, maybe um, poor John Dell's hand fell off after, like, inking um, everything up until this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because he's not back next next
1: issue either. Just checked.
0: Yeah. Well, um, um, John, you know, this is us from the future saying, I hope you're well. And uh, Drew, welcome on board. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember, and it's one of those things where I read it so long ago that I can't tell if this is true or a memory or whatever, but uh, one of the few times I've read much commentary about this series was, as I've mentioned in a previous episode, on an old comic website called Silver Bullet Comics, mm. which I don't think is active anymore. And I remember reading a, uh, a piece of commentary on this issue where someone wrote that they really didn't like this line from Batman.
1: Well, get me tactical.
0: Yes, they, they, their general, their, the general opinion of the person writing this article, and this is so, this is so, so far in the past that I, I, I cannot even begin to reference that person or the article in question. Uh, their opinion was that this is all a lot of bombastic silliness, and um, it's not really super heroics. So it may sound cool, but this isn't Batman. This is just coolness. They they didn't approve, basically. I disagree. I think this is,
1: <laughs> you know, this is a huge crisis going on. I know it's, you shouldn't use that word around DC heroes. Lowercase lower lower crisis. Lowercase crisis. Batman has just been involved in a fight with Prometheus, a trip into the ghost zone, being psychically connected to a Martian ship. He is all business. He's now very aware that this Maggeddon thing is is approaching and he needs to deal with it. And he is the League's tactician.
0: So... It makes perfect sense to me. Um, it's funny how um, uh, I can kind of like, to some extent, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with that person, but to some extent, I can see what they're getting at. Like maybe what they do not like is Morrison's uh, approach to writing quite snappy one-liners. You mm. know, uh, he's not, he's, they're not like a kind of quippy, Joss Whedon-y kind of jokey kind of writer, but like a kind of this is kind of epic and badass sort of thing. And I was thinking about a similar moment in Final Crisis where Superman, written by Morrison, says something to the effect of we're dealing with beings that can, like, enslave, uh, enslave planets with words, can, you know, rewrite reality, can, like, crack planets in half. Justice League, amber alert. And I, I just find it funny that it's a very similar line. It's got that kind of, like, punchy double meaning but it doesn't quite land as well as mm. as something like this.
1: Yeah, I I don't remember that moment in Final Crisis. Well,
0: there you go. That's I probably not the, to think
1: about Final Crisis.
0: <laughs> well, that's probably the most damning thing, PJ, if you didn't remember it, then it clearly didn't land. Um, but this is this looks incredible, like as a as a moment, like the colors in particular just the poses, um, the size of the boom tube. Uh, yeah, I love it's huge. I love that. Oh my god, yeah. And again, you know, that as we said in previous episodes, that praise for Howard Porter for being an underrated but quite worthy successor to Jack Kirby when it comes to bringing this sort of stuff to life.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at the previous page and the sort of the mother boxification of Oracle's computer setup, and then this boom tube on this page with the the, the lines and the way that the design of the tube and the Kirby crackle coming off it, it's it's perfect. I think, yeah, again... I'm going to say it: Howard Porter, the natural successor
0: to Jack Kirby, and underrated. You know? Oh, hugely. So tell your tell your friends for crying out loud. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, PJ Kyle's dead, so we're probably not going to see him again. Yeah, let's turn the page. Oh, look, it's Kyle! Oh my god! <laughs> uh, so Kyle's yeah, Kyle's just been blown up uh, in in the upper atmosphere.
1: Yeah, he's he's in the middle of the explosion at the moment. His his spaceship. Sort of debris flying apart around him, and his yeah. <laughs> his caption box goes and then in the last
0: thing I say is That is Entra- so lame. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, Kyle is lovely, uh, very, very kindly for a benefit of the um the the audience. Uh, he is narrating the moments of his death as he explodes in a brilliant fireball above above planet Earth, and then he realizes um he's not dying. But he's still narrating, and then he wonders, "Well, well, hang on a minute, who am I talking to?" And then, uh, and then he realizes um, he's clinging to the side of um, Metron's Mobius chair. Yeah, yeah. And
1: Kyle recognizes Metron; they they've met before, Rock of Ages. And uh, Metron just flies him down to Earth and basically explains that you know the world needs preserving um, as as new genesis is to the fourth world earth is to the f- to be to the fifth that is to come a lot of heavy stuff but mostly he also just says to kyle you know okay your ring's not working but is that mcgeddon's will or is it yours
0: yeah and it, and it, it's odd because um true to his nature metron i don't know claims to be quite neutral mm. just like a kind of um observer um so, yeah, he doesn't say, hey, Kyle, I, I rescued you. It's your good friend, Metron. Let's go kick <laughs> McGedding's ass. Uh, he, he just gives him like a smog's head talk about how wonderful Earth is. But then, but then tipping his hand a little bit gives him, I don't know, a subtle pep talk in a way.
1: Yeah. Tells him what he needs to hear, basically. Yeah. There's, there's the bit from Kyle going, I'm, I'm just Kyle Rayner. I'm a freelance artist who works out. I'm just this guy, you know, I'm just just a
0: guy. <laughs> and uh <laughs> uh and yeah um I mean he is just a guy uh but he's but he's our guy. And there's a really yeah. nice visual here where um uh Metron kind of like deposits Kyle next to the JLA embassy. Um yeah. but it's this weird thing where like it's completely deserted. Like completely deserted as if um I don't know they're like in a, a they're like a heartbeat away in like a parallel universe or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then Metron fades out, and you turn the page, and Kyle is surrounded by chaos.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, he's just blank, blam, like back in the moment. And uh, yeah, um, we see the, the effects of war, basically. Like, we see a lot of injured superheroes. Yeah, we've got
1: uh, The Flash, Jay Garrick, Wildcat, Our Man, Dead Man. Uh, no, he's Green Lantern again. Uh, alan scott golden age green lantern Starman. wait is he not sentinel at this point I, well he's he's wearing the green lantern costume with the actual i'm not sure i'm Anyhow. not sure him <laughs> <laughs> hawk girl hippolyta another speedster that i can't make out just ahead of hippolyta i think that's what that is and then yeah is it nuclon and black canary
0: Oh, that is Nuclon. For a minute, I was going to say it was like Captain Comet or something. But like um, his mask's off, isn't he? Yeah. Isn't yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we get the lovely uh, comic book effect of no dialogue from Kyle, just a question mark. Yeah. Which I love. Like, yeah.
1: And then there's there's smoke and fires in the background and
0: and, you know, it's all kicking off. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, now he's back in the physical world, and this moment—what um, was it? What did Metron say? The hyper now, the Omni moment. <laughs> yeah. um, God, I love that. I need that on a t-shirt. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, we we uh, um, Oracle's radio telepathy picks up Kyle again. He's like, oh, Green Lantern, like you're safe. And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. Metron showed up, and it's like, okay, yeah, that's explanation enough metron was here. And um it's a, it's a small but nice detail that like Oracle's like, "Oh, thank God we have someone in our corner." Yeah. You know, just proving again that despite all the many, many, many superheroes who are on hand, Kyle is big league, you know. Having Kyle there even depowered is is a good thing to have.
1: Yeah. Yeah, cuz he's he's standing there saying, "Well, I don't know what I can do. The power rings out of juice when um Power Girl whose costume has torn in a very inconvenient place, and Captain Atom, she's holding Captain Atom in her hands and he's got a red bandage around his head as he's taken a Sidewinder missile to the face and it's smashed his jaw and fractured his skull, but he can just about get out the words, Lantern, Justice League, finish this.
0: Yeah, and um, Kyle uh, again mentions the Purple Ray technology, hmm. which... Um, Again, we, we, we're maybe both a little woolly on when it comes to the actual... I uh, definitely need to do my research on that, uh, what it means, but I think it can be inferred that it is a wondrous healing technology which the League have access to. Yeah. Um, sadly, I'm not sure if he will ever be able to do anything for Captain Axum's truly bizarre costume. <laughs> <laughs> it is a weird one. I am not against the all-white look uh, and the coloured gloves. I just think his chest emblem is very, very odd. Well, it's supposed to be like the
1: outline of an atom, isn't it? But it doesn't. I think so, it just yeah, looks so, like a a fluffy thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, the phrase "supposed to be" is doing a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> yeah, there. I yeah. have to <laughs> say. <laughs> um. So yeah, so Kyle in one of the, it's like one of those rare moments where you know there's a brief second of calm in amongst the chaos and he's like okay I need to see what I can do and there's a very nice detail in the background blinking you miss it but you see um, Hippolyta giving directions to Animal Man. Yes you do. He's just kind of you
1: know asking questions. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then on the uh, the next page you, Huntress walks over as as Kyle says oh you got another wa- watchtower great have you seen Zauriel? And Huntress just says he fired me. Batman fired me from the league. And again, in the background, Hippolyta's still giving Animal Man directions, and you can also see Hitman and Lobo
0: (laughs) are here, of all people. Yeah, probably best not to think about that. And weirdly enough, in the next panel, um, Steel. Yeah, yeah, this is another one. I don't know if maybe the pages were rearranged after... Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, maybe... Maybe Porter had entered a kind of like fugue state at this point from just I don't know the last three years of of, the, of his life and uh, and and drawing World War Three in particular because or maybe it's um, quantum superpositioning uh, caused by the uh, gravitational anomaly around Mageddon.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's got to be that. <laughs> <laughs> but as as Huntress walks off. A confused kyle is approached by guy gardner who just says are you the green lantern or what and then says he can take a break he needs it ring or no ring and that he's got to stop taking guy so seriously and i like this it feels to me like at this point they would kind of softened the character of guy gardner a little bit in a way that i really enjoyed it felt like natural growth and mm. and i yeah he, he he was he'd grown up a bit and then of course Jeff Johns does Green and rebirth and
0: undoes all of that as quickly as he can, but we would don't talk about that. <laughs> he, uh, a tough character to like at the best of times, yeah. Um, but he has a purpose because he tells Kyle exactly what he needs to hear in that moment, particularly when he gave him a bit of a hard time earlier about mm. supposedly breaking the ring. And uh, yeah, um, you know, as as Guy says, you know, you gotta stop, you gotta stop taking me so seriously. And Kyle says, I wouldn't know where to start. But thanks. Maybe I just need a little time on my own. Yeah. And um, I like this because uh, Ma- Morrison and Porter take an extra couple of panels just to show Kyle walking into like a uh, a quiet corner, you know, like like a warehouse essentially. Yeah, it looks like the place where they, they just keep the paper, you know, for the printer.
1: <laughs>
0: and then Kyle basically just kneeling on the floor and talking to his ring and says... Okay. Megeden, huh? You and me, dude. Yeah. This is I love this. This is
1: Kyle entering into a battle of wills with a primordial annihilator that is bigger than
0: the planet. And and it's like we have no idea what Prometheus did to the ring to break it. Like we don't know what he's done, you know, has he has he technologically uh you know put an error into it? Has he has he done something psychological to the ring? Prometheus is weird. He can do weird crap like that. Yeah. But Kyle is one way or another just going to willpower his way out of it. And it
1: just Oh, I miss Kyle so much.
0: <laughs> this is like it's a big ensemble piece, big cask of characters, big cask of enemies, a cask of thousands. And again, it comes back to Kyle, who ha- we have said countless times has been the emotional heart of this series in a way. Um, and yeah, like obviously you've got Superman and Batman, these living symbols, but Kyle is just a guy, just a guy who works out. And it's kind of nice that it comes, when it comes down to it, he's so pivotal. Yeah. Yeah
1: and and it's the fact as well that you see him in this position taking on this fight and at this point it's like do you know what Kyle could do this Kyle could take
0: on the primordial annihilator yeah <laughs> yeah and and it's a, it's a sad little juxtaposition because again one of the other most human characters in the series has been huntress who we see making her slightly um well, it's not a very glorious departure from the series, basically. Just, it's low-key, isn't it? It's just goodbye, Huntress. And um, I cannot help but feel she was slightly badly treated. Hmm. I, I mean, Batman's action's appropriate, and so on. But as we discussed in a previous episode, it's like... Was it, I don't know, editorial-wise, was she forced out? Like, you know, was there just not enough time to give her the big aftermath or send off... That you know she may be required. Was Morrison not interested in doing that? I don't know. It it just it just seems sad in a way because I think she conducted herself very well on the league and and now she will forever be seen as a as a I don't know bit of an also ran in league history. Mm, yeah,
1: but not by us. Not by us. No. But we cut from the quiet moment with Kyle then to. <laughs> crazy action. So we're just going to be basically checking in on various places in the world and what's going on there and we start with Venice Beach in Los Angeles which is apparently being invaded by both the Canadian and Japanese military uh, but they are being <laughs> routed by Young Justice, Stargirl and Stripe and the Atom as you good
0: see. shout! Good shout on Stripe. Like yeah. I was really hoping I could pull that one out of the bag and go like, "Oh, I bet PJ doesn't know who that is." But oh, no, no, it's because their comic was Stars and Stripe. Yes, no, I mean, I, PJ smashed it. I shouldn't have doubted him. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, we've, yeah.
1: We've got Superboy sort of carrying some soldiers back out to sea uh star girl is is flying along as red tornado takes a missile to the chest arrowette has just shot an arrow at a canadian soldier impulse is running along the atom is l- um, leaping off a bit of paper i don't know uh, and stripe has picked up a tank so <laughs> so it's it's all good yeah um, no
0: dialogue though just just this no,
1: just, chaos just action
0: and I think this is around the time because once again, uh, for the hard of hearing, uh, this was my first ever JLA book. Uh, I had no idea who Red Tornado was, and it took me years to work out who he was. But every time I saw him, I was like, "Oh, who's that cool red dude? He looks cool. He looks iconic." Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely not a. I mean, definitely a leaguer, but not like. Uh, I don't know. I just I just found his appearance quite striking. I found him and Jean just quite kind of weird to look mm. at. And, Whereas, uh, for me, I loved this panel
1: because I was collecting Young Justice at the time. Oh, of course. And so to see them in the main JLA book, especially Impulse and Arrowette, who are two of my favourite characters from that book. Ah. Um, yeah,
0: I just, I was just happy to see them. Uh, well, I hope you like arrows, PJ. Because I as do we like to, arrows. As we cut to Metropolis, and I should point out, a bladed arrow... Uh, which I I do have to hope is about to turn into, like, a lovely pillow. I think he's just going to go through his shoulder. Ow. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So, um, cutting away to uh, yet more people who love Arrows, Uh, and I'm going to try and get this right, PJ, and I I hope uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, We have Green Arrow, Mm -hmm. uh, Connor, um, our our ex-leaguer from this series. Good to see him back. Yep. And uh, he's shooting a, shooting a soldier. Uh, and we have Arsenal, a.k.a. at this point in history, the former Speedy? Yes. Yes, there we go. Yeah, the former psychic of Green Arrow.
1: Original Green
0: Arrow. The original Green Arrow. So it's a bit of like an Arrow family reunion. Yeah, Oliver uh, Queen hasn't come back yet. <laughs> no, no. And, and he is using... Because uh, I, I think as Arsenal, he didn't necessarily use a bow is that correct
1: i think he did but i think the assumption is he's he's either out of arrows or he's he's lost his bow in this fight um because he's using the elongated man as a bow and i don't know is it like a fire hydrant as an arrow uh or a parking
0: meter something something. like that i mean it's gonna hurt that's yeah that's
1: hit a shoulder a soldier in the stomach and i love that Green arrows in the foreground. He doesn't say anything, but he's looking over at elongated man and Arsenal as he fires his arrow at this other dude and just nails the shot. And he's basically doing uh, the Hawkeye moment.
0: Yeah, before Hawkeye.
1: Yeah, and even though he's not, he doesn't say anything. This is a silent cameo of one panel. I like that Connor is the focus because he was a part of this book. He mm. is. He he was a member of the League, not for long, but he was there. And I like that you do see him because it's just, it, it feels like we're catching up with everyone in some small way.
0: It's a bit of a, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of like a a lap of honour for uh, Morrison. I think uh, Morrison's like, you know, doing all the greatest hits uh, from the series. And and it's interesting because the next couple of panels, we get a cool little moment with Firestorm. mm And I I do think that, like, Morrison enjoys the character of Firestorm. uh, And it's almost a shame that he wasn't a bigger player in this run on the book. I I think... uh, Because Morrison features him in in, uh, DC One Million. Yeah, I think...
1: DC 1 million and this story were the places for Morrison to bring in the characters they couldn't fit on the main league in the main book. So you get this Firestorm moment. You've got the Blue Beetle and Booster Gold moments. Blue Beetle's quite a big part of DC 1 million, in fact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Atoms had his moments as well. So, yeah, it's it's just... It's it's Morrison getting
0: to play with all their toys. And, uh, and, and again, I love... Um, I need a better word for this, but but I love the needless but cool moments that you can fit in. And Morrison's very good at this. And by needless, I mean, they are not directly advancing the plot in a uh, essential kind of pared down manner, but they are what make the story worth reading, like the little bits of salt on yeah. the And uh, So this is unnecessary, but cool, where we have Firestorm um, uh, responding to a bunch of nuclear missiles in the upper atmosphere and um, Oracle shouts at him in his head uh, to change the uranium in the warheads to magnesium uh, to effectively make the the bombs, well, maybe not harmless but a lot less harmful. And um, yeah, we get a nice sort of point where she says, oh, um, sorry if I yelled at your mind. And he goes, ah, no problem. I'm kind of used to voices in my head.
1: Yeah, which would mean nothing if you don't know Firestorm but... (laughs) Yeah, you know, for those who do know the character,
0: it's just a nice little touch. A nice little touch. And always nice to see those big baggy sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> um, but hey PJ, um do you remember Queen Bee? No, who's she? Uh well um she's yes. a new character introduced. To- well oh, actually no PJ. Um she is um She's the last wrinkle preventing the League from devoting all their efforts to stopping the end of the world. Yeah, so we cut to New York City where Steele is chucking his hammer
1: at some of her bee soldier people and going over to Plastic Man who's been reduced to a puddle that can't say anything and saying, look, you had a plan as Queen Bee calls in back up saying to her swarm the hive is under threat and Steele says, look,
0: the soldiers couldn't see you, bee behaviour Oh, of course, I'm an idiot and it's it's a nice quality where um because obviously plastic man's been shot in the neck by some by a sting, so he's all like blobbly blobbly on the floor. And um uh yeah, he's covered in footprints. Yeah, uh, which is a really nice touch because yeah, the bees can't see him. They are just walking right over him. Yeah. Remember, you know, I hadn't noticed those footprints
1: before, but you are correct. That's lovely.
0: It's, it's a lovely little touch. Uh, great detail, I love it. And, uh, yeah, um, just to add a ticking time bomb, uh, the big bee ships are flying overhead and they appear to be charging up their abdomens, which one can assume is some kind of death laser because they are preparing to sterilise the entire environment in a radius of 18 local miles. Yeah, yeah. So we cut back to the fight where Barda
1: is attacking Queen Bee and the whole bunch of soldiers protecting her. They're managing to keep Wonder Woman at bay. They're shooting at her, and she's deflecting the bullets, but there's so many of them that she can't get close. And she shouts, great Hera, she's killing Barda. And then, it's it's really funny, but also brilliant. Steel has wrapped himself in Plastic Man <laughs> and just walks over, and Wonder Woman's like, what, what are you doing? Oh, she can't see the colour red. Can you just handle things here? I'm going to just sneak up on her. Wrapped in Plastic Man.
0: <laughs> now... This is really really cool, and it we is. could. I, I wouldn't want to get a scientist in here because, uh, you know, it could be argued that not being able to see the color red is not quite the same as going invisible when you wrap yourself in a red sheet. It's like, it's comics logic, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good. No, it's it's better than no plan. You would just kind of look <laughs> grey. One would imagine. Um, but yeah, um, so we get this. Uh, you know, great big shambling shape which is steel wrapped in plastic man and uh he kind of wanders up behind queen bee who is just um like unloading venomous stings from her gun into barda at essentially point-blank range as barda just like slumps like a like a prize fighter who's just been punched one too many times, like, clinging onto Queen Bee's leg. Like, yeah. it's brutal. Yeah, but
1: it's it's steel leaping at her from behind, like a big red marshmallow ghost.
0: <laughs> <laughs> marshmallow ghost. A big red marshmallow ghost is the band we need right now. Uh, it's, it's the only description I could think of. It's <laughs> brilliant, PJ. Uh, but yeah, um, the big Red Marshmallow Ghost uh, lunges at the Queen, and uh, Steel is a you know kind of breaks free from his big squidgy wrapping and um, grabs Queen Bee by the wrist, basically. Yep, says the Injustice
1: Gang is finished. We've got more important things to deal with, Um, but she flings him away and is about to commence the sterilisation bomb.
0: When a boom tube opens behind her and Steel just says, gotcha. Uh, uh, And uh, Queen Bee looks confused because she doesn't know what a boom tube is. And uh, he turns her back on Barda. Never do that. Which which is a mistake. uh, Because even though blood is dripping from her lips, Barda gets a quip in and says that we sting too. And then she absolutely just cracks Queen Bee in the face and sends her flying into the boom tube, basically. Yeah, which
1: it, Steel dropped his boom tube generator behind Queen Bee, and she's done, she's gone, her soldiers follow her into the tube, it closes, and as Wonder Woman and Steel rush over to Barda, Steel says, the the swarm goes where the Queen goes. I sent her back to the Hive World, and they're all following. And we see the ships, the, the Bee ships, all flying back into space.
0: Um... And, which, you know, and at the same time, uh, a, a fighter jet just crashes into a building. Because that's still going on. That's still going on. We see a few people standing on a rooftop here, and I can't tell if they're, like, members of the public or some kind of obscure superheroes that we I haven't been able to pinpoint. I, I think they're members of the public. I think. Yeah, snappy dresses. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, and uh, poor Barda is not looking very good, basically. Very smoke trailing off her and she is slumped to the ground
1: yeah yeah so we we turn the page and this is where i wonder if the the kyle scenes were supposed to be after this sequence we've just had in the book ah interesting i think that would make sense but then i think they they wanted to i don't know change the focus slightly so they moved things around potentially i'm just guessing here but it's why we saw steel in the earlier scenes but we're backed in the JLA embassy, and Wonder Woman walks in, cradling Barda, and, and shouts that she's fallen, and she's had countless lethal stings. She needs emergency treatment, or she'll die. And then, oh yeah, and Plastic Man.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Poor Plastic Man. I haven't even thought about it, but we don't see him again now, do we? I don't think so. No. Hopefully, he's getting the care he needs. Although, I choose to believe that with his weird physiology. Like, he's probably going to cope a little better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he'll be he'll be fine eventually.
1: Eventually. But obviously with Wonder Woman walking in with Barda, Mr. Miracle is here and he's naturally concerned because Barda's his wife. So he says he has to get her to the source chamber on New Genesis and starts to apologise, but Wonder Woman says, look, she gave her all for us, so have you. Just go, I'll take over.
0: Mm. And we... Get and you hear a boom as you know, presumably they boom tube away, mm-hmm. and you get a, a lovely but small moment where Diana kneeling is like, oh, uh, you know, a moment of a moment of doubt, maybe a moment of exhaustion where she's like, oh, para preservers, and then we see a hand on her shoulder and it says, Diana, it's not over yet, we're needed, and it's Batman, and yeah. You know, this little quiet moment between long, long-standing colleagues who yeah. mutually respect each other. And then Wonder Woman stands up and says, I know, emergency meeting of the JLA.
1: And there's another small detail in the background that lends credence, I think, to my theory that the pages <laughs> were moved around, which is Alan Scott is placing Captain Atom on a stretcher in the background behind Wonder Woman.
0: You know, it's entirely possible, PJ. It really is. I hadn't thought about it like
1: that. Yeah, no. It's it's only occurred to me as we're recording today, but I do wonder if the New York scenes were supposed to open the issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh my god, it could. You know, that could well be the case, couldn't it? Mm. How bizarre! Oh. <laughs> there we go. Comics, um, <laughs> but hey, but yeah, the um, the. I don't know, This is it's really got like a kind of final act vibe now because, yes. yeah, the all, the all the minor threats have been dealt with. All we have to deal with now is the giant, giant face in the sky. And, uh, yeah, the band is kind of back together. Um, but uh, let's take a little detour, shall we, to Skeel's workshop.
1: Yeah, and he's hammering away at a new glove as Animal Man walks into the room behind him. And this is where he specifically says... The general crushed my wrist servos in his mouth, almost
0: bit my hand off. I'm trying not to think about it. Yes, a scene which, despite the quite explicit dialogue, has caused nothing but confusion in years to come. Yeah. And it... It's also maybe like there's a there's a bad piece of colouring in this issue in, in this one panel. It's not a big deal. I don't want to be too critical, but it's basically like I think what we're meant to be seeing is Steele's like naked hand. Maybe. Yeah, his, his left hand. Yeah, but it's kind of like it's coloured incorrectly. It's not like a skin tone. It's coloured the same colour as his armour. Yeah. Um. But yeah, because again, the confusion arising in uh, 52, not the new 52, the event called 52, which was a few years later where steel expressly says the general bit my hand off and then that in that point and from that point onwards steel has a robotic hand yeah so there we go maybe there was lasting damage that he had to get seen to later whereas here he's just making a new glove uh but hey animal man's here it's animal man everybody
1: yay and this this really is the the proof that morrison's just doing what they want at this point which is Mm. a good thing because Mm. this story is brilliant but obviously morrison has a soft spot for and an affinity with animal man people who know morrison's career will know why that is and so i think it is lovely that they were allowed to bring animal man into this story and 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 have him play quite a key role
0: yeah and i I do like how like because animal man has a has a has a wide suite of powers. Um, But at the same time, you know, if we can be realistic, he's not going to be quite as useful as, say, a Superman in punching Mageddon. So I do like how his cameo here is not just him turning up and guns blazing and just, you know, drop-kicking fighter jets out the sky. Like, in the brief glimpses of him we've seen in the background he really has just been standing around with his hangs in his pockets in his awesome jacket just like asking questions and like talking and yep. i i do i do find it it's just such a small detail but i love that he turned up and what makes it interesting is that he had an unusual idea that nobody else has yes yeah it's it's wonderful
1: and and about the only character who could have done that in this way and again i i love that morrison's able to bring him in like this and this this book is my first encounter with animal man back in the day mm. i hadn't read any animal man before this i didn't know who he was uh i have since gone back and read s- not all but some of the morrison
0: animal man comics and they are great <laughs> oh yeah and and again like uh a decade i mean i think uh animal man began in 1988 Something i want to like say that. yeah yeah yeah, so over a decade since um Morrison such made such an incredible name for themselves as doing this weird meta subversive series, quite a quite a game changer in its own way and um his his buddy just kind of walking in and i I do have to assume that particularly after the ending of Animal Man, the buddy just lived quite a happy, quiet yeah. life, you know, doing a little bit of superheroing here and there, you know that's nice.
1: And I like that that Steele says to him, "I don't think we've met because there are so many superheroes <laughs> and so many of these events. <laughs> Steele's like, look, we
0: might have, I don't know. I meet a lot of heroes. Is Steele also thinking like, like hey, dude, like continuity, I don't know if we've met right now. like <laughs> you're a vertigo guy, aren't you? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Animal Man's just like, hey, you know, I I wanted to speak to a scientist. There's also a really nice thing where he says, "Hey, buddy," just where everyone calls me Buddy. I was in JLA Europe for a while. You have to, you'll have to ask them how that happened. <laughs> happens. <laughs> uh, but basically, he's been um, he's been watching the lizards, and uh, he thinks he's worked out how Mageddon works, and maybe a way to stop it, which is huge. Not bad, not bad. And you know and and you know not only is he smart, he's wearing goggles, always great on a superhero, and he's wearing a jacket over his superhero suit, which is probably the pinnacle of the art form. Yeah, agreed. And I think
1: has he all I think he's always had that jacket, though it's always been part of his costume, hasn't it been? He sort of was he the one who started that nineties
0: trend? Oh, I don't know if he started it, but I I do know that I think in his original appearance pre-Morrison, he did not have a jacket. Right. I okay. uh, I think it's particularly a point of Morrison's run that he puts on the jacket at some point.
1: Okay. Because I know obviously the most famous example is Rogue in the X-Men, but I don't think she got that costume until 1990
0: 91 perhaps Mm, so it could i mean if 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 morrison and and animal man weren't the first they were certainly among the first trailblazers i'm going to say (laughs) because obviously rogue probably the most well well known example yeah, uh, but, but of course you don't have the success of the X Men running around wearing jackets without having uh, the Avengers all running around wearing jackets, um, which was a slightly less effective uh, time period. Um, but yeah, we also get um, this gift of fashion across all kind of superhero image. They were big into it. Big, in, Storm. Yeah. yeah. All
1: about the jackets in her age. But oh. I, th- I think Rogue's the most successful because she's the one who they keep returning to that look, giving her a jacket
0: in more modern costumes as well. So. Oh, well, frankly, they we just need to stop giving the X-Men new costumes every two weeks for crying out oh, loud. Oh, yeah.
1: that's Every new creative team has to be, I'm going to do a new costume. What happened to the days where superheroes just had one iconic costume, eh? <sighs> just
0: accept that... Rogue never looks better than when she was wearing a flight jacket and and let's just uh, give people continuity for crying out loud just stop giving them, oh, oh my life I thought I thought the point of a superhero was to have a recognisable costume, not to change it every five minutes.
1: Yeah, and I don't think any character that they've given a new costume to in recent years has had a better costume than the ones they were wearing in the early to mid-90s maybe No, I, I, One exception ooh. I will go to is Quicksilver who's um alan davis costume in the beauty avengers run in early to mid 2000s when they added
0: the collar high collar lightning bolt down the middle light blue on one side dark blue on the other
1: yeah that for me is the iconic quicksilver costume that's Uh, a good look yeah
0: um i think i kind of um i yeah i liked the uh i think when george perez would draw quicksilver wearing like a dark dark blue costume with like white white trimming which was that quite was nice. that was his
1: 90s costume anyway uh-huh. he, he'd worn that in in previous avengers books and in the x-men
0: and yeah it's a shame he's such a prick really yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh i guess uh the captain marvel costume redesign i mean oh, marvel, marvel. yeah marvel marvel captain marvel yeah
1: no that i'll give you that one that is superb yeah, yeah, that's
0: got to be one of the big
1: success stories,
0: I think. And probably the best costume Carol Danvers has ever had. Yeah, well, binary. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, okay, no, I shouldn't have said that. Um, interesting that the Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel, great costume redesign. The DC Captain Marvel, re- costume redesign, not good. No. No, I think it's... Ugh. Unnecessary. That Give was a new a 52 thing, though, wasn't it? And No one came out of that looking good. <sighs> How, how do we make this character edgy? Let's give him a hood. Let's mess up a silhouette. <laughs> Anyhow. Sorry, back uh, in the 90s. Um, <laughs> back in the 90s, sorry. No no jackets on this page, sadly. Uh, yeah, we, we've got a
1: meeting between Batman, Jean and Wonder Woman and Hippolyta's in the background again and I like that Hippolyta doesn't... Again, she was part of the book. She doesn't get a central moment. She doesn't even really get, as far as I remember, a main panel cameo like Connor had but she has been in the background an
0: awful lot. <laughs> I think when I was younger reading this, I was so confused as to why there were two wonder women yep. running <laughs> running around. That's fair. Um, but yeah, and so we have a kind of uh, three-way conversation between these kind of elder states people of the JLA, in a way, where, you know, for the longest time, as Oracle pointed out, Kyle was their only big leaguer on the ground. And... Um, I don't know if they're even aware now that Kyle is sitting in a warehouse just around the corner having a a quiet freak out. Yeah. Yeah, but these three are having a meeting and Wonder Woman says we're trying to fight to end war. That's a paradox. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's also the fundamental paradox at the heart of the Wonder Woman character.
1: Yes, it is. It is. She she mentions having seen Wonder Woman wrecked and the greatest champions of all time murdered one another at Mageddon's bidding and Batman says, well, we might be better than them.
0: We, we haven't turned on one another yet, so... Yes, and I, come to think of it, they actually hold out really well, I would say. Yeah, you know, Because sure. there's an alternate telling of a story where the League just start kind of beating the crap out of each other. That's the Marvel version. Yeah. I'm glad, <laughs> it, I'm glad it didn't happen, actually. Maybe, yeah. maybe they're just that good. Um... And then this is, you know, one of those kind of you know, slap slap of the forehead moments. Um Jean just casually mentions um you know, hope isn't, you know, we haven't lost all hope yet. Um the flash, remember him? Um he went on a mission a good while ago uh, because he reported unusual fluctuations in what he calls the speed force. So he went off into the speed force or into hyper-velocity realms that we can't travel to to investigate. So, hey, everyone. Remember how the Flash hasn't been here throughout this entire story?
1: I wonder if there was, like, a Flash subplot that was actually going to be in this, to be written and drawn, that they dropped for space, perhaps? Mm. Because
0: they realised, actually, this works better. I do... Yeah, I almost quite like having I quite like having a, like just having one character just up your sleeve. Like yeah. it's a nice you could have done it to any character perhaps, but I do like the idea that Flash is has just been Yeah, it's like you do blinking you missing because it's such a big cask, but it's like, "Hey, we've got an ace up our sleeve. We've got the Flash." He always pulls something out of his ass. Yeah.
1: And John says, "You know, we're, we're not alone." There are many powers in the cosmos. And Batman says, well, I'm going to stick to the practical. Superman and Orion are our best hope. And then, brilliant moment here, Uh, where Wonder Woman says, Superman just threw himself into a boom tube with Orion, didn't he? Why does he do these things? (laughs) And Batman says, I know. Sometimes he forgets we're all as responsible as he is. And I love that. The two people who know Superman
0: best just... I know. Just ragging on him a little bit. I know. And And it's also that, like... In many aspects, Batman in particular is, well actually Wonder Woman as well, all of them perhaps, they're all playing a character because they have a job to do Mm. in a way. You know, like they're all, Batman is in the business of being Batman, which is being the scariest guy in the room and terrifying the lower rank leaguers basically. Like, and Wonder Woman is in the business of being always wise, always calm, always in control. And this is just this wonderful little moment where just because they're among friends here, they can just be themselves for a yeah. moment. And it's <laughs> yeah. so nice just to, just to see Wonder Woman just being frustrated for a moment because she's like, why, did, why is he always like this? And to see <laughs> Batman, the guy who is always just for one going, I don't care. It's not my problem. Don't distract me. <laughs> Actually just revealing that, of course, he cares. Like, yeah. He's as invested in this as, as any of them and always has been, but he's got a part to play. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's I I love it. It's one I think it's one of my favourite moments in this issue, actually. Because it
0: it's it's also pure friendship, is this oh what's he like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just and, and it's it's a thing that you could only get by having characters that just knew each other of old. Like knew each other almost as well as they knew themselves. And and that are really good friends. <laughs> yeah, which is what people forget. They are they are super friends for crying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I just cause even though this was the first time I'd I'd read a JLA book or DC book, these are the things that stick with you. Like maybe not maybe not on a conscious level on your first read through, but they get at you on some kind of deep subconscious level because, yeah, even I picked up that, like, oh, these are characters that love and respect each other. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's good writing, basically. It's yeah. very good writing.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful moment. So it's almost a shame, but it's also quite lovely when Steel
0: and Animal Man walk in and Animal Man's first line is, hi, John, Alan sends her love. Which is such a nice callback because I believe Jean helps Animal Man security proof his house back in the 80s after the after the mirror master attacks yeah yeah i ha-
1: oh, i need to reread animal well finish reading animal man as i say i never got to the end of the morrison run on that so
0: i do need to do that at some point i need to actually own it yeah. i've 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 read it and i've read it digitally but it's, it's um yeah a good while ago i was aggressively go adding to my morrison collection and then i stopped for some reason so i need to i need to get it i need to get it in hardback
1: yeah i they must have that must be in print you must
0: be able to get morrison's animal man i know for a fact you can get it in a kind of absolute edition like some absolutely colossal hardback Mm. um i settle for actually no i said hardback earlier i meant just in print i'd settle for a smaller one if need be
1: i'd I'd, series a small series of trade paperbacks i'd be very happy oh it'd be lovely Hey, but that jacket's back,
0: PJ. Oh, it's a lovely jacket. This is our best look at Animal Man's costume, actually, and it's great. I love it. Yeah, it's 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 weird, and it and it goes you know it goes around from being just weird to being brilliant again. Mm. Like it's it's great. Yeah, and yeah, he just says hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> it's just such a nice touch. Yeah, and Steel just says, "Look, sorry to interrupt, but you should listen to this guy." <laughs> yeah, and again, it, probably everybody knows Animal Man, but like I think for. The opportunities for, I don't know, Animal Man and Batman to sit down and have a heart-to-heart are probably very few and far between. I like that um, Buddy just kind of scrolls in here. Clearly, he's not here to prove anything. He's not a macho guy. He's just like, hey, hey. So I've been thinking, and everyone's like, "Uh, this guy's actually – I think he's got – yeah, listen to this man – Yeah, and I like how you cut from there as well, straight to
1: uh, clearly after they've explained, and Wonder Woman is just bursting out of the room, and she shouts, alert everyone,
0: we have a plan. And um, Jean and Batman are left in the meeting room. And uh, again, more lovely little character moments, but Jean has apparently decided to attempt a, I don't know, a, a psychic merge with Mageddon, he's going to probe it telepathically and Batman's basically like um, are you sure you want to be alone when you do this? and Jean's like no no I have to try and we get a wonderful little moment from Batman he says "John, I know you're a little bit fascinated by what you encountered out there, be careful the abyss gazes also as they say <laughs> so yes a nice little friendly warning from Batman as yeah. he strolls out and, and it's a very Batman way of delivering that warning, isn't it? I know. He didn't have to say it, but he does care. Yeah, Batman does care. He's not a complete sociopath, for crying out loud.
1: Yeah, but Jean's trying to make contact to find Superman and Orion uh, to see if they've succeeded in any way. So we then get this, this page is incredible, and the next page as well, but for very different reasons. We'll get to that in a moment. But this page starts with... Jean sat at the table, but it's quite a long shot. Jean is almost in shadow and is a very small part of it. And he just says, Superman, Orion. And then he starts speaking telepathically. And the, it's more close up on Jean, his hands on the table. But the background starts to fade. And while you can still see detail of the room, you can still see the Magellan-like skin tone and the mm. sun behind him. As he says, suffocating clouds. Is there anyone? No real mind? huge and simple and implacable reptilian, as Animal Man said. And then you get even closer on Jean and his his face is filling half the panel and the rest of the panel is Megeddon, but like a full shot.
0: Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, and um yeah, it really is. I was just I was just soaking it in there and uh yeah, it, it just say like these massive kind of machine like thoughts, just all it does is bring extinction, uh, destroy, annihilate Convert all life into death. And he's like, oh, is I mean you're breaking through this kind of mantra, this weird kind of like the thought process of Mageddon. You, you John's like, you know, is is anybody there? Is is you know, am I picking up something? And then you just get this kind of like scream of Am Mageddon. I'm yeah. like I'm Mageddon.
1: And but as you see, it's oh, broken so, up. The word Mageddon, its it's Ma dash Ge Dun. It's like Mageden, a chant almost. Yeah. As you it's, see M- magedon's eyes and the sun in his face, sort of
0: staring out over a city. I'm Ooh. I'm I'm smiling and I'm shivering at the same time. Same, and, same. Uh, a great suffering presence, chained and despairing. magedon turning the endless mill wheels. And, then we, and turn, then we turn the page yeah, yeah.
1: and you get this tiny panel of Jean shocked as a small dialogue, Moons of Mars, Superman. And then it's basically a splash page of Superman chained up in the middle of Mageddon, screaming, Mageddon, his his eyes just dark pits, his costume torn. It's it's
0: terrifying. Yeah, I cause I mean you know, this is this is the realm of literally the realm of symbols. This is this everything is mythology in Morrison's world. Everything, particularly in the JLA, so why there's such a good overlap. And this is literally the brightest symbol, pretty much the the apex of superheroism. Who is literally unbeatable from the logic of a child, uh, chained and broken in the heart of literally this the concept of death and war and annihilation. Like, it doesn't get more kind of primal than this. Like, it's... Yeah, it's, it's big. It's rough. It's...
1: And then a tine, another panel, tiny panel of Jean just saying, quietly saying, no. This is this is despair distilled into an image. <laughs> it's... Yeah, it, yeah it, every time I read
0: this book, this page gives me a, a chill. And... You know, literally, as it seems, all hope is lost. You get like a massive lightning bolt, like like the sound of it, thunder rather, like crack-a-voom as it goes. Like probably just the deepest bass hit you could imagine. And we cut to outside and the sky is like a roiling vortex of energy and there's like lightning striking everywhere. And the superheroes try to assemble, you know, they're saying, like, you know, what the hell is that? Like, formation people, if it's hostile, go for it. And then you just, I don't know, it's hard to describe. You see, like, a kind of ripple, like a a blurring in in, in space. And you just see, like a like, a kind of silhouette of somebody moving, just like a blur in the middle of all this lightning and wind. You just hear this voice going, it's okay, it's okay. At least it is i'm not on some parallel earth again and and then the vo- and then he goes is that is that you guy gardner is this me yeah and then it's it's wally it's the flash
1: it's the flash we all know and love this is, wally west is back and that is cause for celebration and he just, he's got a smile on his face as he says no that was a run how bad keywords fill me in and guy just <laughs> Guy staring wide-eyed as you also get our man Wildcat and Jay Garrick stood behind him, also looking slightly terrified as Guy points behind the Flash and says, Flash, stop talking for a second.
0: What the hell is that? And we turn the page to, to what I, I think when I was younger, I just was, took to be the most badass picture I'd ever seen in my life. Um, it's Wally crackling with lightning, standing in front of this um, gigantic silver humanoid who's just crouching down to be in shot and crackling with blue energy. And Wally just goes, what does he look like? I brought help. (laughs) And that's the end of the issue. That's the end of the issue. That's...
1: Oh, it's insane! That is an insane comic.
0: Yeah, I mean, wow. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, yeah, I yeah, I some incredible imagery like in in this issue. Um, as you said, like I mean, and, and moments are just shivers. You know, I. Reading this issue by issue for the podcast has been an enlightening kind of yes. experience. Yes, uh, definitely. As opposed to kind of you know treating it as one big story as, as the trade presents it, and which it so easily kind of works as. But yeah, again, like if you'd pick that up as a single issue, I mean, like what a what a roller coaster, basically. Yeah, and it's. I almost feel like the
1: that page of Superman chained up in the heart of Mageddon is for me, almost the opposite of what Morrison did with Superman in the angel arc when, when Superman was the Mm. best Superman, the electric blue Superman. (laughs) And you have that almost splash page of him moving the moon. That is Superman unbound, unleashing his power to do something amazing, and then this is Superman chained, and the symbol of hope becoming a symbol of despair. It, it it's yeah, so good. Mm.
0: Well, it, it's quite interesting because a, a, a similar, um, a similar contrast could be. I mean, here we have Superman chained in the center of a cosmic machine. You know, be his strength becoming a component of Mageddon. And then you could look at the end of All-Star Superman, which ends with Superman in the center of a machine in the sun, toiling to keep the sun alive. Like, yeah, like his strength being used for so many different purposes and, and the symbolism of what it means in each instance. Like, it's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, it's,
1: <laughs> I don't think anyone has has done stories that show what Superman truly means better than Morrison. I think between mm. this entire run, you see it so often with, with the acts they have Superman performing, with what they show Superman meaning in the Dreaming. In that Sandman story, and then with this story, and what's still to come, and then with All Star Superman, I would I would argue that nobody has had has has delivered that mm. in quite the same way as Morrison has.
0: No, massively so, massively so, and uh, yeah, and and and, it, and it's weird because again, like um, I this run was my gateway to morrison it was my gateway to D- to dc to jla uh to superman like i'd never owned or read a superman comic i only knew knew him from the cartoons and and the movies and there was just a certain epicness a certain and again i think this goes into what your brain would subconsciously register while while reading this series and i, I think it is it is the mythology of it and i think that comes from as you say, a writer who, who understands really on the most kind of primitive level that Superman is more than a man in a costume. Mm. Like he, he more, more perhaps so than any other superhero. He is, he is, he is an embodiment of an idea. And um, yeah. And, 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 and Morrison just uses, uses him to such excellent effect over the course of his series. Like, I, I mean, as much, we love electric blue Superman, I can't imagine, as I've said before, that any moment in an Electric Blue Superman solo story tops some of the crap we see in this series.
1: Yeah, I've I've read some of those, not all of it, but I've read a lot of that Electric Blue Superman era in the
0: solo Superman books, and it just doesn't come close. Hmm. And I've got to say, like, uh, you know, t- t- to share the praise around, um, Porter on particularly high form with some of these pages, like. Yes. I cannot even begin to imagine the toll that this series must have taken. Like it'd be so much uh, hard work. Yeah, yeah.
1: The 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 Kirby of it, when you're dealing with the New Gods side of things, is is superb. That again, that page of Superman chained up is, and and the tiny little panels of Jean in the corners just to really hammer home what this means is is beautifully laid out that first page as well where you get megadon in the sky above the earth and and the various you know the, the battle in space the battle in the sky the battle on the ground it, yeah it's 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 both morrison and
0: porter just knocking it out of the park the um yeah yeah i i just i, I mean i'm trying not to just kind of like uh, just Reread the book quietly <laughs> because you know it's, it's just very enjoyable, but um, yeah, it, it's funny because it's like you know, you could say that like maybe a couple of the shots in this story, in particular, you know, where there have been like hundreds of superheroes in shot, you know, you could you could say, ah, oh, okay, well, maybe a couple of them look a bit a bit stick figure y, that sort of thing, but also, you know, it's not even a criticism because it's like where where it matters. The detail is incredible I mean to draw that splash page of um, Superman in chains to draw that incredible splash page at the end of Flash and the mysterious new arrival stunning but yeah. then also to bring as much energy to the um, final fight with Queen Bee which looks as dynamic as anything in the series
1: yes yeah oh boy I'm,
0: I'm also flicking through what's coming up and oh my god <laughs> Well, again, reading it as a trade all these years, I don't think I'd really picked up on just how big the next issue is. like it's quite quite an oversized issue, I want to say.
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure if it's quite double sized, but it's it's definitely a longer issue. I haven't counted the pages, but yeah, there's a lot and it is so exciting. and it is a culmination. Coming up, it is it is the end of this story that that Morrison's been weaving, not even just in the pages of JLA, but through other things they were doing for DC in the '90s, through Aztec and through DC One Million, which technically wasn't a JLA book, you know. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, so good.
0: Yeah, and it's I, yeah, it's so weird to think that is the that 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 was the penultimate. The penultimate issue of this um, of this incredibly influential series, you know, and and it's it's kind of wild in a way because you know I imagine that Morrison was probably a little ahead on the scripts. Mm. One would have one would have to hope for Porter's sake. So I don't know. Like, had Morrison already departed into the sunset? You know, <laughs> you know, you know. Did they even stick around to see? Because, you, you know, it's not like they're hanging out in the DC editorial offices. Like, as as we, you know, particularly discovered um, in that Wizard interview, you know, Morrison was on the other side of the Atlantic, mm-hmm. you know. the Sometimes quite hard to reach, you know. They were waiting for scripts to turn up on a fax machine. Um, so, yeah, like... Sorry, sorry, PJ. Okay, so they, were they maybe already working on their new X-Men scripts at this well, point when the comic came out? Well, here's the th- here's the thing, because, yeah, like... This issue just came out in April, two thousand. Uh, the final uh, episode of this uh, issue of the series, of course, comes out in May two thousand. So, when did Morrison's X-Men
1: first? That was, it was pre- definitely two thousand.
0: Let's find out. Two thousand and one. Oh, okay. Yeah, two thousand and one. And when did the first issue come out? May 2001. Okay, okay, so it was exactly a year later. Okay. Exactly a year later. I thought it was a lot closer than that, to be honest, fair enough. I do wonder, at some point I need to do a... I really need to work out the Morrison chronology. Like, when did every series come out? Because, like I said, I went after this series, and once I discovered who Grant Morrison was, and also when I kind of just realised that I wanted really, really wanted to write comics um i started aggressively tracking down other morrison content Mm. and i was doing a quite good job and then you know i stopped for a bit uh so yeah i'm just curious now like i i really need to try and like go in and go from like what was it uh zoigs wasn't that like the first ever printed morrison story i believe so from the uk marvel uk comic wasn't it spider-man and the
1: zoids (laughs) which would reprint spider-man stories and do new zoids
0: stories um But yeah, no, I need to work out, like, what did, what, if anything, did Morrison get out in 2000? Like, was there a bridging, short bridging story that came out between JLA and New X-Men?
1: That's an excellent question. Uh, Because I don't think, I don't think they did anything for DC after JLA, did they? Before they came back with All-Star Superman.
0: Oh, yeah, because all Star Superman was, like, 2004. So that was, like... I, I want to say, like, 2004. So that was, like, right after New X-Men. Yeah. Uh, and it would have been quite unlikely that they would have been simultaneously working for Marvel and DC, much as any creator has a kind of... Aren't they a bit pernickety about that thing? Yeah, I think so. They don't like people working for the distinguished competition. Uh, but, yeah, because... Then um, after All Star Superman, wasn't it um, Seven Soldiers of Victory? I want to say throughout the mid two thousands.
1: Oh, do you know what it was? It was in between JLA and New X Men. It was Marvel Boy and Fantastic Four. One, two, three, four.
0: Oh my God! The Marvel Knights um, yeah. stories. Yeah. Oh my God.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm on their wiki at the moment and it says two thousand JLA Earth Two was released and it was Morrison's last mainstream work for DC for a while oh, before okay. they moved to Marvel.
0: And of then course, yeah, Earth Marvel 2. Boy and Fantastic Four. Jeez Louise, I forgot about Earth Two. Yes, of course, which of course we did we did in chronological order, but in publishing order. Uh came oh heck. When uh Earth two, Earth two uh January two thousand. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's already out. Wow, how bizarre! <laughs> a busy individual.
1: Yeah, well, I haven't read uh, Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four. Actually,
0: have you not? No. Uh it's it's all right. It's very weird. Okay. It's very weird. It, it's a bit of a weird nightmare, but I think that's how it's intended to be. <laughs> that sounds like Morrison. Yeah, it's a like Marvel. Mar- it was the Marvel Knights period. It was a that was a weird slew of content anyway. So. It was. It was. I think
1: the the problem was, obviously, they, they brought out Daredevil under the Marvel Knights banner and that under Kevin Smith, and that did really well. So then they just went, let's do all the Marvel Knights content, and none of it was... There was some good stuff in there. um, Like, Marvel Boy. Uh, that, was, that was definitely a good one. Mm. But I'm not sure the rest of the Marvel Knights line. And then they tried to put Marvel Knights out as a team book, didn't they? With... Daredevil,
0: Black Widow, and Punisher, and that was yeah. But also, I mean, like, give it's like uh, Siri, give me a uh, t- you know, give me a perfect time capsule of <laughs> of two thousand. You know, um, yeah. wasn't there also around that time they were doing like Marvel? Was it Max? The Max adults was yeah. there.
1: supposed to be Marvel's answer to Vertigo, wasn't it? And I think that was. Because I think Marvel Knights sort of comes to an end oh, not that long. I think it was only four or five years. Because you get, you do get Ennis' Punisher was under Marvel Knights, and that was great. Yeah, very and then highly regarded. Mark Miller does Marvel Knights' Spider-Man, which is 12 issues, I think. And then it just becomes Sensational Spider-Man, and Marvel Knights is gone. And that's around when they bring out Max Comics, because Ennis had been doing Marvel Knights' Punisher ongoing, and then that became... The Punisher Max book that Ennis did. Um, and so Luke, I think Marvel Knights ends and the Max comics begins. They're two very different things, but yeah,
0: wasn't wasn't Bendis doing Luke Cage?
1: Bendis didn't do Luke Cage, someone else did the Cage series. Bendis did Alias in right, Max, which it. Luke Cage was in quite a lot. And actually, Alias might be one of my favorite things. Bendis did, I've got a
0: real soft spot for Alias, I think it is mm. a very good book. I've never read the original Alias, but of course, obviously, laid groundwork that would eventually get incorporated into um, all of Bennis' stuff on Avengers. You know, yeah. uh, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage coming coming more into his vision of of the mainstream mainstream Avengers. Yeah, for sure, for sure, and then also led on to then once
1: Jessica Jones sort of came out of the Max Comics line and was in normal marvel comics than they did the pulse which i think was also a very good comic some of, i think because obviously bendis created jessica jones and was sort of given free reign with her for a bit and i think that meant it was some of the best stuff bendis did i think when when he's when bendis is doing stuff with his own creations like jessica jones miles morales as well i think that's when he does
0: some of his best work mm. Mm. no i agree i agree i just I, you know juxtaposing again the two things it's like you know you have morrison's marvel boy uh which is a really weird and kind of anarchic book uh and then of course that character kind of languishes for a bit with no other creative team really knowing what to do with that character yeah and then um bendis is the one who resurrects that character first in the illuminati and secondly in dark avengers yeah. and Neither of which really hit the same hikes with the character. No, uh, no. I think when they brought
1: him into Young Avengers, which I want to say was when Kieran Gillen was doing yes. Young Avengers,
0: that's when I think they, they recaptured the Marvel Boy magic to a degree. Yeah, that's when he got interesting again. But yeah.
1: But it was odd because there was for a time before Bendis brought the character back, for a time Marvel sort of tried to claim that Marvel Boy was actually set in the Ultimate Universe somehow. Really? Yeah, and was actually the first Ultimate book. There was this thing going around that it wasn't in the main MCU. Uh, sorry, MCU. The main Marvel universe. And then I really? think that was quietly shuffled away and no one said it ever again. But there were definitely a few interviews soon after the Ultimate book started saying, oh yeah,
0: Marvel Boy might have been an Ultimate book as well, actually. Ha. Huh. Well, that's weird. Mm. There was also the... I'm um, uh, just thinking for a moment that the, the filth I just want to find it here. Uh, I want to work out what year the filth came out with um, Chris Weston because that was originally t- ah interesting. It came out for two th- thousand two uh, under Vertigo, but was originally stated uh, to be um, it was originally pitched as a Nick Fury story for Marvel. Okay, yeah, because huh. there
1: was a. Nick Fury Max book, but that was Ennis again.
0: It was a mini-series. I don't know. It's just such an odd period, isn't it? Because it's like, you know... uh, uh, In many ways, this series, JLA, feels like the end of the 90s. Yes. Uh, Maybe not just... You know, it's the kind of thing you can only form patterns of by looking back at it later, but, like, not just because it ended in 2000, but, I mean... Taking everything the '90s produced, the good and the bad, and summing it up in this story, which was very modern but very silver agey, it really felt like a turning point. Like we are entering a new era in superheroics. Morrison has shown us what that what that standard should be. Yeah. And yeah. then Morrison goes, and then there's this, and then there's this little kind of weird period where he got like the Marvel Knights stuff, and then Morrison does New X Men. Where Marvel are like, we want you to do for us what you did for JLA. And then Morrison completely turns the X-Men on on their head.
1: Yeah, they, they don't really play ball, do they? Because, I mean, if if Marvel had wanted Morrison to do <laughs> what they'd done on JLA, they should have given them Avengers.
0: But obviously Busick was still on Avengers, and I wouldn't trade anything for Busek's run on Avengers. So No, no, although... I, I feel a sadness that we've never gotten a Morrison Avengers. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Yeah, um, But no, but, it, but it's so funny because it's like... New X-Men and JLA are only a year apart from one another, but flipping heck, don't they feel like different eras? Oh, completely. Yeah, it's just wild. Like v- um,
1: Very different beasts as well. Very yeah. different beasts. Just showing that Morrison is, is,
0: is very versatile. You know. I think
1: Morrison's new X-Men run is a is a weird one for me. It is brilliant. They they do some really interesting stuff with the X-Men and there's some fascinating storytelling in there. But it is so different to any X-Men that came before or after it. It's a real outlier that it almost feels like it's it's not part of the main marvel universe in a way it clearly is and stuff from it is still being referenced and and affecting what well i haven't read a marvel comic for a couple of years but (laughs) as far as i'm aware (laughs) you know but yeah it just feels like such a different beast to any other marvel comic
0: it certainly suffers for um i mean it's not an easy read in the same way that jla is oh god no God, it no. does. It doesn't reward you in the same ways, but it does very interesting things in in turning a, a series which had become very stale on its head. It's, and it, I and clearly it was a shock to the system. I that, I would say it's a much dirtier book. Oh, it, it is dirty. You in, feel a bit dirty
1: reading it. You know, and in that not so much in a grit. It's it's dark comics. It's not so much in the grim, dark, grim and gritty nineties way it's a very there's there's very grown-up take while you've still got some of the big superheroics stuff going on here and there but yeah it's it's a very interesting book new x-men and again as i say i think there's some very clever very interesting
0: stuff in there but i really don't think it's what marvel wanted (laughs) No, well, no. And I think it suffers because they lost their nerve. Yeah. And it suffers because the series got truncated and it didn't get the wrap-up it needed and certain plot points were kind of abandoned. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then it's interesting, but, you know, it definitely get it, it upset the apple cart and it's maybe what the series needed because, you know, suddenly... Oh, I, mean, I say suddenly, but, like, 20 years later... Uh, X-Men, you know, X people are raving about X-Men again. You know, um, maybe I'm being unkind because obviously the current creative team are doing a lot on it. It's maybe not exactly for me, but like people started talking about the X-Men again from that point on. It brought a lot of attention onto them.
1: Mm, yeah,
0: it did. It did. And the X-Men book sort of floundered for a little while, I think, right after
1: Morrison left. It's sort of there. From there you get... Soon after it's when Whedon comes on and they do Astonishing X-Men and they sort of go back to superhero... Because it's not really a superhero book when Morrison's on it. No. And it got, very much goes back to being a superhero book after Morrison leaves. And But then you, at the same time as Whedon's on Astonishing, they brought back Chris Claremont to Uncanny and Chuck Austin on X-Men or maybe <laughs> the other way around. And while there is a really good story Claremont does with Alan Davis where they bring back the Fury, the old Captain Britain villain, that Mm. I I have a real soft spot for. The rest of the Claremont stuff just leaves me a bit cold and it's just Claremont doing Claremont again. And, yeah, it struggles for a while, I think, X-Men, to the point where then they sort of shuffle them away and then the the films happen. So then the X-Men are in their own separate bit of the Marvel Universe and can't get involved in the crossovers because of internal editorial edicts at Marvel saying, no, we can't really
0: use them because we don't own the film rights, you know? Yeah, and it's just weird because again, you know, it's so it's so hard to imagine nowadays. But of course, the Avengers were the the lesser known characters. Mm. You know, it was uh, X Men were big for Marvel, Spider Man was big for Marvel, Hulk was recognisable, but no one cared about Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, that sort of thing. And of course, you know, the X Men movies following on from Blade and, you know, Spider-Man movie around that time, like, they were Marvel's flagship characters, you know. Yeah. And, and it's weird to think for it, like, from, you know, Morrison comes on board, 2002, the first X-Men movies come out, and from this period, you know, it's post-2002, but pre-2008 with Iron Man, you know, it's an X-Men kind of world, you know. Yep. Yeah. Maybe the comics are floundering a little bit, but that's what Marvel are like. Oh yeah, people recognize the X-Men. That's what we push. Then new, then of course new Avengers happens, following on from the new branding. And from there on in, now we're just on this roller coaster through, you know, it's Marvel's world. Now we live you know, we all just live in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Pretty much. Anyway, we got off topic a bit there, but or I got off topic and PJ PJ wonderfully just, you know, kept us interesting. But I think I think the 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 end of the TED talk is <laughs> Morrison's fingerprints are on everything. Basically, you can find them at every yeah. era.
1: Yeah, actually, that is true.
0: They're they're a really influential writer. It turns out. <sighs> PJ, have we touched upon everything we could possibly touch upon in this our penultimate issue of the Morrison run on JLA? Sadly, I think we might have done. Yeah. Well, in which case, um, I guess I should say a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork.
1: Uh, And another massive thank you to Elliot Red for composing and performing our
0: amazing theme tune, Justice. And if you enjoy hearing PJ and I talk and uh, keeping up to date on our other projects, you can find us both on social media. I know we've both been quite busy lately, but we are alive and we do care. (laughs) (laughs) And PJ... If we have reached the end, he said, pregnant pause? Yes. Cool, thank you. Uh, Would you please see us off in your own unique fashion?
1: No, I've been talking to the lizards and they told me that the episode's ending, so I'm going to go with the lizards. Thanks, lizards.